0: Good morning. Welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Well, so far in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar has proven to be a complicated figure. One minute he worships the one true God, and the next minute he worships, and expects others to worship, a golden idol. One minute he rewards Daniel and his friends with power and prosperity... And the next minute, he's trying to tear them limb from limb or burn them alive. And in chapter four, one minute, Nebuchadnezzar is pridefully admiring all of his royal achievements. And the next minute, he's wandering the wilderness like an animal. Now, that last part happens because Nebuchadnezzar got a little too big for his britches. His pride got the best of him. But ultimately, God humbled him through a devastating illness that cost him his throne and his sanity. It's only when Nebuchadnezzar repents of his pride that those things are restored. We see that at the end of chapter four, starting in verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I bless the most high and praise and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. Remember that last phrase at the end of chapter four. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, Belshazzar, one of Nebuchadnezzar's successors, is a far less complicated figure in the book of Daniel, but not in a good way. When we meet him in chapter 5, some 65 years have passed since Daniel was first taken from his home. He's now an old man who has spent far more of his life in Babylon than he did in Jerusalem. But whereas Nebuchadnezzar had a sort of ongoing tug of war with his sin, Belshazzar puts up no fight at all. In fact, compared to Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar comes out looking pretty good. And while we can't say for sure what Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with the one true God was like when he died, he does show some hopeful signs of faith, repentance, and worship. Belshazzar, on the other hand, serves as a cautionary tale about our need to be humbled before the one true God, before it's too late. So open up to Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together in your word, with each other, In prayer, singing songs, taking communion, giving. Just doing the seemingly standard, seemingly mundane things at this church that lots of other people are doing at lots of other churches right around the same time. As we just said in our communion meditation, that's not nothing. We are making a statement about who you are and what we believe about you. And so, Lord, I pray that the way we conduct ourselves the way we speak, the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act would glorify you today. Not just in this worship service, not just for this window of time on Sunday morning, but throughout the entire day and throughout the week ahead until we come back to worship you here again. And Lord, I pray that we would be attentive to your word. Thank you that you've given us your word, that we have the privilege and the joy and the honor to read uh, the exciting stories like the ones contained in the book of Daniel and the scriptures that we don't always turn to on our own. Thank you that all of your word is inspired and useful and helpful for us as we grow in holiness. And thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's because of you, Lord, that we get to approach the Father in prayer, that we have been forgiven of our sin, that we've been reconciled to the God who made us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And I pray that your spirit would be with us as we read this morning. Again, we love you. We thank you. We glorify you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Starting in chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. One quick side note, that phrase, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, Father father-like language in the ancient world could be used very flexibly. You could call your father, your father. You could call your grandfather your father. You could call your adopted father your father. You could call your ancestors your father. And we'll see why that's important here in a moment. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver. Bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, I don't know about you, but the opening verses of Daniel 5 leave me with an entirely negative impression of King Belshazzar. He is a raucous partier, a heavy drinker, an accomplished womanizer, and an experienced idolater. And when it comes to things that we might call sacred, Belshazzar is an irreverent and belligerent blasphemer. I'm not sure we can come up with a good comparison for just how much of a travesty it was for Belshazzar to use these vessels, the one from the temple in Jerusalem, for this event. Think about someone going to Washington, D.C., And somehow, some way, tearing off a piece of the United States Constitution to write down someone's phone number. Or imagine someone playing football with a Fabergé egg. Imagine someone selling a family heirloom on Facebook Marketplace. Again, those comparisons don't even do justice to the stravesty of Daniel chapter 5. But they at least help us think a little bit about just how terrible this event was. How irreverent it was. And by the way, in a historical detail that makes Belshazzar's actions even more outrageous, even more cringeworthy, is the fact that he wasn't even truly king in the fullest sense of the term. His father, the real king, we talked about the flexibility of that father language was a way fighting the Persians and left Belshazzar in charge at home. So effectively, at least as long as daddy is away doing the real work of a real king, Belshazzar is the king in Babylon. But deep down, Belshazzar is a poser. He's a wannabe. He's a spoiled brat. We pick up in verse five. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom because Nebuchadnezzar excuse me, Belshazzar was the second ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So the entitled, foolish, obnoxious Belshazzar gets quite the wake up call, doesn't he? Just picture it for a moment. The party suddenly stops. The wine ceases to flow. The music is quickly silenced. And I'm picturing that sound effect that you see in movies and TV shows when the record is suddenly stopped. Fear and confusion grip the room. Belshazzar looks like he might throw up and it's not from the alcohol. It's because a visible but otherworldly hand appears, writing mysterious words on the wall. The words perplex the Babylonians, no matter how much of a reward Belshazzar offers. But thankfully, as we already know from earlier in the story, God's got a guy for just this sort of thing. We see him in verse 10. Daniel's really making an effort to draw a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, isn't he? That'll come up more here in a moment. Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called And he will show the interpretation. You know, in my humble opinion, the queen doesn't get enough credit in this story. Because she apparently had the good sense not to participate in Belshazzar's party. She likely was not Belshazzar's There's even a decent chance that this queen is Nebuchadnezzar's widow. Either way, she comes across as the only wise and respectable Babylonian in the story. And who does she suggest that Belshazzar call? The old exile Daniel. The man who helped her husband so many times. And the fact that Belshazzar, as the acting king of Babylon, has no idea who Daniel is, further illuminates his less than stellar character. But here's the thing. There's still hope for Belshazzar, right? I mean, after all, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't always the wise and humble, worshipful, almost likable figure we read about at the end of chapter 4. It took a long time some real missteps, and a few humbling lessons for Nebuchadnezzar to do any sort of spiritual growing up. Belshazzar just needs to listen to Daniel and learn from this lesson the way his ancestors did. If he does that, all will be well. Belshazzar still has hope, at least for now verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. Remember the end of chapter 4. He was driven from among the children of mankind, And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. not difficult to detect Daniel's feelings about Belshazzar. He refuses his rewards, compares him unfavorably to Nebuchadnezzar, and pronounces judgment upon Belshazzar. In chapter 4, Daniel expressed genuine affection for Nebuchadnezzar, but he shows none for Belshazzar. But what's far more important than Daniel's view of Belshazzar, or my view, or your view, is God's view of Belshazzar. And God does not think highly of this wannabe king. Not coincidentally, Belshazzar doesn't think highly of God, the king of heaven and earth. We already saw his disregard for anything approaching virtue. We saw his complete comfort with blasphemy. We already saw his penchant for taking the things of the one true God and recklessly employing them for sin, debauchery, and idolatry. But even even after the scary-looking hand we see Belshazzar's utter lack of response to God. Sure, he keeps his promise to reward Daniel for a job well done. But there is not the slightest sign of faith, repentance, and worship. In that sense, he is no Nebuchadnezzar. That very night, Belshazzar meets the maker he has no time, respect, or concern for. Legend has it that while Belshazzar was partying, the Persians, having defeated his father in battle, were lurking outside the city. Babylon's walls were considered impenetrable, towering up to 350 feet high. So the Persians redirected the flow of the Euphrates River that ran under the walls and through the city. They then snuck under the walls using the muddy riverbed as a tunnel, captured the city, and killed Belshazzar. So while Belshazzar got drunk, God's judgment was standing at his front door. But he was too busy, too self-absorbed, and too prideful to notice before it was too late. He simply couldn't. He wouldn't read the writing on the wall. So in Daniel chapter 4 and 5, we see two men who have a few things in common. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were both kings of Babylon, in some sense. They were both full of themselves at different times and in different ways. And both received a message from God. But these two men are also quite different from each other. In one incredibly, you might even say eternally significant way. One repented of his pride and humbled himself before the one true God. The other did not. Now we may interject that this does not seem fair. Nebuchadnezzar had more chances. He was given more time. But that was a gift of God's grace. Something God was not obligated to give to either man and can freely and justly offer or withhold when and how he sees fit. And though the time between Belshazzar's warning and death may have been short, keep in mind that sadly, even after the handwriting, those cryptic words on the wall, there was no sign of life in Belshazzar. So in some ways, these men were similar. But in the single most important way, they were very, very different. What was the common sin between these two men? It's one word. The word we saw at the end of chapter four. The word we saw in the middle of chapter five. Pride. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar observed all his accomplishments and gave no glory to God. In chapter 5, Belshazzar lifted himself up against the Lord of heaven. They were both prideful and they were both judged. One repented and humbled himself before God and the other did not scripture thoroughly and consistently condemns the sin of pride In Luke chapter one verses 51 and 52 right after Mary learns that the son of God will be carried in her womb Mary says this that God has shown strength with his arm he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. James warns us in chapter 4 of his letter that our lives are a mist that appears and vanishes. Therefore, to pridefully boast about our big plans, our big goals, our big ambitions with no thought of God is nothing less than evil. First John two sixteen and 17 remind us that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away. Many have argued that the essence of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden boils down to pride. Eve takes a bite when Satan informs her that eating the fruit can make her like God. One theologian refers to pride as the fertile mother of sins. And as Proverbs 16, verse 18 teaches us, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Just ask Adam and Eve. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. Ask Belshazzar. Of course, you don't have to be king or queen of the magnus rites of pride. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others, and of which hardly any people, except some Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves the more we dislike it in others. A theologian by the name of Philip Melanchthon once wrote that the sin of pride besets many saints and can easily come on a person during favorable times and especially among excellent people who possess wonderful success, remarkable glory, and great gifts of God. The sin of pride can catch the least of us to the greatest of us. When it does, we're often blind to it. It may come from our looks, our finances, our accomplishments, our titles. It can be handed to us or earned. And people like us living in a well-to-do, up-and-coming suburb of a major city in a first-world country may be particularly susceptible to pride. We might not have the audacity to spit in God's face the way Belshazzar did, but we can still fool ourselves into thinking that we've got everything under control and can do quite all right without God's help. And as we saw with Belshazzar, even when the writing was on the wall right in front of him, the sin of pride led him to dismiss God's coming judgment. And if we do not repent of that sin and place our hope in Christ, the writing is on the wall for us too we too will face judgment. Not at the hands of the Persians, but at the hand of God himself. On our own merits, we too will be weighed and found wanting. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, writes this, For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Our reasons for pride, our reasons for boasting, will protect us from judgment just as well as Babylon's walls protected Belshazzar from the Persians. They won't protect us. But there is hope for us. Going back to Romans 3, verse 23, Paul continues in verse 24. While all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. For chapter 6, the rest of verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By faith in Jesus Christ, the man who did not consider (laughs) equality with God something to be grasped, the way Adam and Eve did, the way Nebuchadnezzar did, the way Belshazzar did, the way we all have at one time or another. He humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross, so that prideful sinners like us can be saved from judgment. Your story, my story, doesn't have to end the way Belshazzar's did. And if I may be so bold to say it, If you haven't yet believed, this sermon might be God writing on your wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. So don't wait around until it's too late. We can speculate about whether or not if Belshazzar had as much time and as much warning as Nebuchadnezzar, he would have eventually repented of his sin and learned his lesson. We don't know the answer to that, though none of the signs were particularly encouraging. On top of that, we're in no position to criticize God's actions or methods or timeline. But we do know, we should know, that death can come quickly for any of us, just as it did for Belshazzar. We may not get as many chances as Nebuchadnezzar did. For all we know, we may stand before God in judgment before today is done. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That expression, the writing on the wall, has been burned into our imaginations. Whether we realize its biblical origins or not. The writing on the wall is something that we can... Or at least we should seek coming, and we often wonder how people don't. Eternally speaking, the writing is on the wall for all of us. We are sinners separated from God, and a day of judgment is coming. Our only hope is Jesus Christ, the one, but instead humbled Himself to a cross for sinners like us. So may we repent of our pride and humble ourselves before him before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together as siblings in Christ, as people made in your image. And thank you for the rousing stories of the book of Daniel whether it's the inspiration of Daniel chapter 3 and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Thank you for the excitement of the story that we'll read next week, Daniel in the lion's den, and your provision for him. But I pray we wouldn't skip over chapters 4 and 5. I pray also that we would Take the scripture that you've given us that challenges us and calls us out and calls us to account and forces us to look in the mirror and think how we might be guilty of the same sins as Nebuchadnezzar, the same sin as Belshazzar. Again, none of us are kings or queens the way Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar were, but we can still be prideful. We can still be arrogant. We can still be full of ourselves. We can still think that we've got it all figured out. We can still glory in our achievements as if we are not beneficiaries of your grace and your provision in ways that we see and ways that we don't. We can still pat ourselves on the back rather than recognize that we are products of your grace above anything else. So, Lord, help us humble ourselves before you. Help us read the writing on the wall and come and kneel at your feet. Come and bow at the cross of Christ, recognizing that when weighed, we are found wanting, that we bring nothing to the table, that we have nothing to offer in and of ourselves, and are wholly dependent upon your goodness and your mercy and your kindness to us. So, Lord, again, I pray that you would humble us, root out the sin of pride in our hearts and in our minds that we're all guilty of in one way or another, that can so quickly find its way in when we least expect it, when we don't see it. Lord, humble us before you so that we can be exalted by you, Because your exaltation is the only exaltation that lasts in eternity. We love you. We honor you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.